0: Verse number 12 and 13, we've come, we've come through the first 11 verses, he switches gears now at this point, as he has been dealing with the return of the Lord, the day of the Lord, our response, um, or, or what's going to happen to us, I should say, concerning all that. So now he changes gears a little bit, and uh, um, verse 12 and 13, and I'll show you how this bridges with it in my introduction. Verse 12 says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for this church. Lord, I thank you for uh, your grace and your mercy. Lord, I certainly pray for that tonight. I pray for your help. Lord, I pray that you control what I say and how I say it. Help me to stay true to your word. Lord, may this be a help to us. May it exhort and and draw us closer to you. And so, Lord, please control and work. May we be changed as a result, Lord. Please open uh, the truth of your word to us. Lord, if there's anyone here who is not genuinely... Has never genuinely been converted, Lord. I pray for that conviction and that drawing that even this evening they would repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, one thing that's that is good about expository preaching is you're just going through it um, line upon line, every word, every word, because that's what you should preach. It's it's odd to me that I should just. Pick from God's word what I preach, what I preach when it's 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 all of it's God's word. It's what I should preach, and uh, so when it comes to sections like this, even even sort of sections that I sort of have a dog in the fight being the pastor, because this section deals with the relationship between the pastor and the congregation, um, and it's much easier for me to preach this because simply I am I, I'm, I am going through First Thessalonians chapter five. It's not targeted. It's not anything of the sort. And, uh, and that helps as Paul is coming to the conclusion of this letter. Again, this was a church, remember, that Paul was really very pleased with. When he got the report of Timothy, he was overjoyed to hear them still staying strong, staying faithful, in spite of all the persecution they were going through. This would be a key church for the gospel. And uh, Paul, again, rejoiced at Timothy's good report. There were some things he had to deal with. There was confusion concerning the Lord's return, Paul did teach on that when he was there um, but there was still confusion some false teaching had already come in and so he so we've been dealing with that the last few weeks chapter 4 and, and this first half of chapter 5. Now what he's doing is he's bridging now we know he's established okay listen the Lord is going to return. We're not appointed to wrath. That's not for us. We will be raptured out but he's now saying listen but here's how what we need to concentrate on right now. As a church this is where we need to be. And so he's given a series of instructions to finish this epistle to help that local church in what they need to be doing. How they can, how they can uh, uh, one day hear when the Lord does return, well done, my good and faithful servant. And the very first place Paul goes in this series of instructions is the relationship between the pastor and the congregation. It's the first one he goes to. He starts here because of how important that relationship is. If the relationship breaks down between the pastor and the congregation, there's a whole lot of destruction that can take place. There is no way this church can possibly glorify God and accomplish what it needs to if there is issues between the pastor and the congregation. And so Paul, starting off in this series of instructions for the church, he goes right there to begin with. <clears throat> And the devil, keep in mind, the devil will work very hard to try and put division between the pastor and church members. He can start with just one. He, he will constantly work at that. And there's, I mean, you think of the spiritual implications. Whenever you're in a leadership position, if those are in management right now, if you're in a management and a secular job, I've been there, whether that was military, whether that was civilian sector, when I went into management, you were a target because you're in leadership. If you're in a leadership position, you're going to be in targets. You're going to have to make decisions. It's not going to make everybody happy. You're going to see that take place. But you add the spiritual aspect onto that. You add what's at stake at a church. You add the fact that it's something that Satan directly attacks. It goes to another level now of what you have to be on guard for between the relationship between the pastor and the congregation. There was a survey done of of 3,000 churches. They questioned pastors and laymen. And it had a series of questions. I just want to bring uh, your attention to one of them. One of the questions dealt with, what are the main reasons that people drop out of church? And so when they put together the survey, one of the, it wasn't the biggest, but one of the major reasons that people left a church was simply, let me quote it. Oh yeah, it's simple to quote. I didn't like the pastor. We're not talking about a pastor who became a heretic. We're not talking about an unfaithful pastor. We're talking about personality differences and people making decisions to leave a church over that. It's crazy. There are many pastors, many, who have left their churches simply because of all the hurt and pain that has come up against them. Just like there are members who have left churches where there have been abusive pastors who have hurt their members. Spurgeon, considered the prince of preachers. Pastored the London Baptist Tabernacle there in London, England. Considered the greatest preacher, pastor of his day. I a, in our bookstore, there's a book on Spurs. You go online and read his sermons. An incredible preacher, an amazing pastor, pastored an incredibly large church. Yet, boy, he also had issues with his congregation. Many say it's what led to his premature death. What happened with Spurgeon was this. Spurgeon was fighting the liberalism that was coming in throughout Europe of his day. um, Dealing with a lot of theology. He was fighting against it. And the Baptist Union voted him out. Think about that. We really could say he was the very first independent Baptist church. Now, he's not credited with that. J. Frank Norris out of Fort Worth, Texas is credited with that in 1946. But he got voted out of the Baptist Union. Now that had to hurt. But what hurt worse was this. His own assistant pastor, who was also his brother, voted with the union. in his own church. It's said he never recovered from that hurt. He never recovered from it. When there becomes all between pastor and membership, that's, it can destroy, it can do a great deal of damage now, in the New Testament, you have three different primary terms, and I'm not going to get into all of it tonight. They're used interchangeably, but they have different nuances when it comes to that of pastor. The first one is that of elder. Um, that's the first word we've seen given. It's used 69 times total in the New Testament, but 18 of those is it actually referring to a pastor. The other times, it's referring to um, leadership of Israel. It's referring to those who are simply older in life. But 18 times, it is used in reference. As that of a pastor. And the nuance of it, it deals with that of leadership and spiritual maturity and wisdom. That, that, that the pastor should be characterized uh, um, by, by those two traits. He, he's one that needs to I, has, has to be a leader, has to have a spiritual maturity and spiritual wisdom about him. The second term we see is the word bishop or overseer. It's the exact same word. Bishop or overseer. This has the nuance of overseer oversight in the church, especially in regards more to administration, that the pastor is going to be taking the oversight with the administration of the church, word bishop or overseer. Um, And and so it deals with that spiritual oversight and authority. Then the third word is that of pastor. It's the same word as the word shepherd. That's why that's used uh, as shepherd. It's the exact same word as shepherd. It has the idea to feed and to protect. And so it's, it's, you put those things together. You have one who is the leader, one who has the administration, and then you have the, the, the pulpit ministry, if, uh, if you will. It sort of defines the role of a pastor. And the relationship then that comes in between the pastor and the church, as I've already said, is incredibly important. What Paul does here, he does two things. What he does is he gives the responsibility here of the pastor to the congregation and then the congregation to the pastor. All right? So let's dive into this. The first point that I'm, I'll focus on, the majority of, is the pastor's responsibility to the congregation, and I'll finish briefly with the congregation's responsibility to the pastor. Look at verse twelve. It says, "And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you." So, let's go through this right here, as far as the responsibilities of the pastor. This verse gives three responsibilities that are given. The first one is, he is to labor among you. They are to work. That's exactly what's to take place. The word used for labor here is a strong word, about the strongest you can use. It means working to the point of exhaustion, it means to toil, it means to sweat, We see this word used in other places in regards to the preaching of the Word of God, in in regards to Paul's ministry and whatnot, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, other places as well. And the truth is when it does come to that aspect of ministry, it is very toilsome. I mean, think about this for a second. It's every single week preparing two to three sermons. Two, uh, uh, for me, which are very involved and very expansive. Just the two messages, not counting the topical that might come on a Sunday night, those, each of those will be combined from a series of notes for each single message from 7 to 12 pages. From that, I'll narrow that down to 4 to 6 pages of an outline by the time I finish those notes. That's done twice a week. You put that together in one month, that's the equivalent of one to two dissertations every month. It's every week, every week. 52 weeks a year, week in and week out, that that is taking place. By the time I finish Wednesdays, which I try and shoot for around noon on Wednesdays, that certainly doesn't always happen, and, but that's the goal. By then I'm already then flipping it. When I finish, usually I grab over, I flip over right now to the book of Acts, and already start getting thoughts for what I'm going to have to start studying for come Thursday. To try and get a jump on that, when I'm home, start thinking about what's going on, what's going to be taking place from there. This is just dealing with the sermon preparation of the side house. This doesn't count the counseling, the visiting, the problem-solving, the administration of the church, the putting out of fires, the planning of the future, whether it's wedding, funerals, hosting conferences, on and on and on. To quote from one commentator or pastor, uh, he could say things a lot better than me. He says, faithful pastors are not undisciplined people who simply show up on Sunday. Faithful pastors are highly disciplined people whose lives are brought into line so that they can pour their whole life into the flock God has given them. Think of the responsibility that's given. Turn over, turn back just a couple of pages of the book of Colossians, chapter 1. I want you to see this. And once you begin to understand the responsibility that's given, you'll see why the devil will work incredibly hard to put division in. This, I think, is a great verse that sums up, it, 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 even when I teach pastoral theology, we just finished the course and, and I teach on there's three primary things that, that make up your work as, as a pastor. There is the actual pastoring, there is the pulpit ministry, and then there's the administration. Um, this verse, though, I believe is the ultimate goal when you are a pastor, what every pastor should be shooting for, and that's verse 28 of chapter 1. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. The goal in pastoring is to help present you in a complete, mature walk before God. Think about that. Think of that, think of that goal. There is no other career that has that goal at mind considered in, in all of eternity. No other, no other career that, that to work to an end... That through your actions, you're helping people that when they stand before the Creator, it's with a a strong level of maturity in their life. Fighting the flesh that all of us have. A pastor should never just be content with just seeing souls saved, or, 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 or packing a church out, or slight spirituality. It should be obsessed with what... Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28 is saying to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. We have many today, even in those who are pastoring who are sacrificing their time, not for the sake of presenting their people complete before the Lord, but for the sake of numbers or for pride or whatever it might be. One pastor said this, let me quote from him as I was studying this text, came across this. As far as the responsibilities in relation to that verse laboring as a pastor, he said, "This we have responsibility to give you spiritual wisdom, spiritual protection, spiritual direction, spiritual guidance. And it is our responsibility to cover all those kinds of things to take care of the general health of the church." Uh, to set the group spirit, the group morale, the spiritual tone, to bring about a functioning unity, to handle people in personal relationships and all their difficulties in life, to solve problems by discovering problems, evaluating options, finding solutions, working for change. It's our responsibility to do creative planning, strategy assessment, analysis, criticism, find methods to reach spiritual objectives. There's a lot that goes into it. <clears throat> and if you're going to be able to accomplish this goal, to be able to present that church at a spiritual maturity. There's labor that goes into that. But he said not only to labor, but notice what else it says. Head back to First Thessalonians chapter 5. The pastor needs to work. He needs to concentrate on, 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 on what God has given him in order to pastor. And that's where that time needs to go. And those are those things that I've I've been covering. He said, Those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. Secondly, I'm to lead. I'm to lead. In order to accomplish the goal that I have from Colossians one twenty eight, there has to be authority that goes with it. And there is God-given authority. Now notice, my authority is in the Lord. It is. My, my authority is in the Lord. It's not self-appointed, and this gives the scope of my authority. It doesn't go outside of that. It doesn't. I'm amazed that sometimes when I hear what authority pastors take upon themselves that goes well beyond anything the Bible has ever said. You know, I gave the example when we were going out for COVID of, of, of why we were not breaking Romans 13 once we understood COVID. We were coming into that August. We are getting ready to hit a second wave, and I said, you know, if they, if they do shut us down, we're not going to. We will police it ourselves as our own local body. And so the concern was, were we breaking Romans chapter 13? And I said, no, because, because it's a different institution. And so the example I gave is where a pastor could abuse his authority. Hebrews thirteen 7, I'll be coming up to that in, in just a few minutes. It, it says, you know, obey them that have the rule over you, speaking of pastors. And I said, that's Bible, that's what it says. And I said, however, can I go into your house and tell you what time your kids will go to bed, what time you will have dinner ready, what time you will do your devotions? Do I have that authority? Does not Hebrews 13, 7 say, obey them that have the rule over you? Of course, everybody would say, even if you're just hearing it for the first time, that doesn't sound right that 's because it 's not right because I entered another institution outside of the church your home i don 't have authority in your home I do it within this church, especially when it comes to what i 'm doing right now, the pulpit ministry in administering the Word of God in the Lord that is the scope of it, but there is authority with the position. Turn over to Hebrews chapter thirteen I want to look at i 've mentioned Hebrews 13, 7, I'm going to combine that with another verse. Or uh, I mentioned actually 17, I'm going to combine it with 7 and 17 now. And think about this. Verse 7 says, Remember them that have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation. Verse 17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, for they watch for your souls, as they must give an account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So when it's established in here the basis of the authority of the pastor, which is in place, that's very real. We have people just running today from pastoral authority. Granted, and some, like I've already mentioned, I know where it's, where at times where I've seen it abused. But there is past, just because it's abused doesn't mean you throw it out altogether. It does exist and it is real. Why? Because I will be the one that gives an account for you. I'll be the one that's accountable for what, for what I decided to preach or not preach. If I thought, well, you know, I, I don't really want to preach that. You know, uh, that's one thing I like about it. It's just, line, just, just going through it. Just preaching it. You know, it's, it's I will give an account. <clears throat> so the Bible encourages you, no, when it comes to these things in the Lord, that's where the congregation should obey. It's not that we don't have, it's not where I, it's, it's the ultimate in where, you know what, I think we need to have blue carpet. No, it's in the Lord. Now, I think, again, for unity of church, a pastor should get leadership and people should be willing to follow. So it doesn't cause divisive. Because let, let's take something simple that we want to change the carpet. We would have 40 different opinions on color and style. We would. Well, that's what you just determine among yourself. All right, well, let's just follow what the leadership says. We'll just go with that. If I don't like it, I can make fun of it for the next 20 years. Have fun with it. Don't get mad about it. So, it's my responsibility to lead in this church. That means, as that, I have to be willing to make decisions. I have to be willing to make decisions that I know people aren't going to agree with. Do you think I enjoy that? Nope. Not at all. I would love to be able to make decisions that everybody's happy with. But you can't lead that way. It's not how you lead. You'd be called a Democrat then if that happened. But I have to be willing to lead with the goal in mind with those decisions being what? The spiritual maturity of the church. <clears throat> and so you have to trust that, as Paul said, with all wisdom, you have to trust that that's where the, the Lord will give the, the wisdom and leadership to. Uh, God will give, put wisdom into the leadership. Thirdly, it is to admonish, he said there back in First Thessalonians, in that verse 12 still. He's, he said, To know them which labor among you, and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. So let's talk about this. Here's a third responsibility given in this verse, and that is to admonish. It means, it has a lot, of, a lot to this word. It means to put in mind, to warn, to entreat, to exhort, so it's part of the duty of any pastor to put his people in mind to the truth, to warn them of danger, to exhort them to perform, uh, 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 to follow the Lord, uh, to admonish when they're going astray. It has the meaning of to instruct, to teach. I need to be able to teach effectively the Word of God to be able to warn with it, to entreat, to exhort. Do you know what's interesting? Of course, as you know, when you look at both First Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, the only actual skill issued as a requirement of a pastor is that to teach. Is that to teach. It's reiterated again in First Timothy chapter 4, First uh, um, 1 Timothy chapter 4, in two places actually in 1 Timothy chapter 4, of the pastor's responsibility to teach. Because the, it is the Word of God that builds you up and I need to use it to that degree to, to, to be able to admonish, to exhort, to warn, to, to instruct. The pastor needs to be skilled at that if he's going to help you, if he's going to help change you, if he's going to give you knowledge of God's Word, if he's going to be able to direct your life. Also, as we see also listed, of course, when you go back to Timothy, that's also important because not only does it be able to build up the church, but it also at the same time, it has to be able, according to the scripture, to give an answer to those who deny the truth by answering in such a way that they can't even argue with, like Stephen did. That's part of the responsibility. And when it comes to the pulpit, to admonish, when you put that together, think about this. That means I am to affect your mind, your heart, and your will when I stand behind you and preach. That's always present on my mind. Lawson, he was talking about those three areas once to pastors. And I like how he put it. I didn't know where he was going at first. And he said he said, you don't want somebody behind the pulpit that's just always going to instruct. Just going from mind to mind and that's it. He said, he said, that's just instruction, and, and, and he's right. If that's all you have, you just have somebody who's going to stand behind the pulpit, and there's pastors like that. It's just instruction. It's just like, okay. And you're done. Then you have other pastors that aren't just mind-to-mind. They're more heart-to-heart. They're more devotional pastors. It's just going to the heart. That's all they do. But they're missing two-thirds of the responsibility. You have other pastors, some of those hard-nosed ones, that just go to the will. They're, they're the ones... You know, they, they might get called times legalists, but they're just a hard nose. They just want, you're just going to do this. This is what you're going to do. But the fact is, to be a biblical pastor, you have to affect all three, the mind, the heart, and the will. And by the way, for those that are called into ministry, I believe the one way that protects you the best to perform all three of those is expository. It is. It'll help you keep in line in all of those. <clears throat> You have to be able to give knowledge of God and His Word to be able to stir the heart and have it challenge them until they get to a place where they will do something about it. Baxter, who this is what, almost 200 years ago, said this. He said, To preach a sermon, what skill is necessary to make the truth plain, to convince the hearers to let irresistible light into their conscience, And keep it there, and drive all home, to screw the truth into their minds, and work Christ into their affections, to meet every objection, and clearly to resolve it, to drive sinners to a stand, and make them see that there is no hope, but that they must unavoidably either be converted or condemned, and to do all this as regards language and style, and befits our work, as yet is most suitable to the capacities of the hearers. This, and a great deal more, should be done in every sermon, must surely require a great deal of holy skill." So great a God whose message we deliver should be honored by our delivery of it. It is a lamentable case that in a message from God of heaven, of everlasting uh, moment to the souls of men, we should behave ourselves so weakly, so unhandsomely, so imprudently, and so slightly that the whole business should miscarry in our hands and God should be dishonored and His work disgraced and sinners rather hardened than converted and all this through our weakness and neglect. How often have carnal hearers gone home jeering at the, uh, uh, um, jeering and uh, dishonorable failings of the at the dishonorable failings of the preacher? How many sleep under us because our hearts and tongues are sleepy and we bring not with us so much skill and zeal as to awake them? He teaches on preaching from a couple hundred years ago. People still read his books because when you read them and you're studying pastoring, you're like, oh, <laughs> so I am to labor in such a way that will feed, to lead you, to be able to admonish. That's my responsibility. And then he goes on to the congregation's responsibility, and this will be shorter. He says, in verse 12, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them. Now verse 13 and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. So let's, let's get into this now, the congregation's responsibility given here in 1 Thessalonians 5. One, he says, to know them. It's an interesting word, a very intimate word. Um, and bef- I came across an article when I was studying this. I figured this is a good place to put this article in here. I, w- I want to read this. The title of this article is How to Get Rid of Your Pastor. Um. It said, Not long ago, a well meaning group of laymen came from a neighboring church to see me. They wanted me to advise them on some convenient and painless method of getting rid of their pastor. I'm afraid, however, that I wasn't much help to them. At the time, I had not the occasion to give the matter serious thought. But since then, I have pondered the matter a great deal, and the next time anyone comes for advice on how to get rid of the pastor, here's what I will tell them. One. Look the pastor straight in the eye while he's preaching and say amen once in a while and he'll preach himself to death. Two, pat him on the back, brag on his good points and he'll probably work himself to death. Three, rededicate your life to Christ and ask the preacher some job to do, preferably some lost person you can win to Christ and he'll die of heart failure. Four, get the church to unite in prayer for the preacher and soon he'll become so effective that a larger church will take him off your hands. (laughs) That's a good article. And the truth is, many pastors have been hurt by their congregations deeply. I can think of many different stories. I gave the example of the introduction, of course, of Spurgeon himself. Many, many pastors have left their church, not because of sin, simply because of hurt from within the church. Again, when you're in leadership, as I mentioned in the introduction, you are always a target. You're always a target if you're in any any authority at all, you become a target. And again, you add the spiritual side to it. Satan's at work. He will do whatever he can to cause problems. This is why Paul's hitting this first. He understands the importance of the relationship between the leadership and the members of the church. So, he says, get to know them. It means... it it, it, it means at a a pretty strong level, getting to know them. But it has a a whole other idea of the word here. It's interesting words. It it has the idea of getting to know with the idea of appreciation. Getting to know with, oh, I see now. Getting to know with the idea of appreciation, which will allow you to show grace and love, even if he moves his pen like this. (laughs) Or he can't speak all the words. Secondly, he says this. You need to esteem them very highly in love. This now switches to your heart towards your pastor. To esteem means to consider, to regard, to think. To quote one pastor on this section, commentator, he happens to be a pastor as well, said this, that love means you seek their best, that love means you overlook their weakness and frailties. That love means you speak well of them. That love means you encourage them. That love means you lift them up as called, as called men of God who have brought you the truth. And he says, you're to do this very highly. Not just a little bit. You're just seeing them very highly in love. Not just casually. But to try and purpose to be that encouragement. I assure you, pastors need that. Do you understand that every message we preach, we question when we're done? Every time. We'll go over every part of man. I should have said that different. Why did that? Every message, we'll question when we're done. Every time we finish counseling, we think, "All right, is there anything else I should have covered there? Is did I give any direction that would lead that the wrong direction?" You better believe. Even to the point of question. Okay, when I'm getting ready to make this decision for the church and make that decision, is it going to be right? Is this it? Yes, you think of all the different people and all the different personalities and you know the different faces come to mind. All right, when I do this, I've got, I got to be able to talk, to talk to this group or this person. I know they're going to disagree with this. And, and you, when the Lord, do you know when the Lord put on my heart at the Independent Baptist Church of Anchorage to start a junior church with the Busterman industry and bring those do you know how many sleepless nights entailed in that? Not because I questioned the leading of the Lord in it. I did not how it was going to be received. You know, that was the reason I had Brother strange up that year from Florida to get advice on how to go about that. I brought him in and said, church has never had that. Ever. And and, and I said, and, and, and I, said I, I don't think it's going to be a small deal. And I said, what do I do? And one, I, I really liked, I liked how he encouraged first off. He said, one, you need to do this. You do. Um, I mean, I, I don't know, it was the story I told him. I remember, I was already on my heart strongly. Then we had the two and four ministry here. And the, the, the final straw was, I was already leaning that way, but the final straw was the two and four ministry. They're giving the candy out. And most of these kids have been coming for years and years and years to our church. The, the question given to get the piece of candy, which everyone wants a the candy, they, can't, they all want to know the answer. It isn't because they're sleeping. They all can't wait to give the answer. Picture this. Seventy-some kids present. What is the name of our church? Complete silence. Attending our church for years, they didn't even know the name of it. And that day, I'm like, Lord, the change is coming. We need to switch this Sunday's. We need to have a place at least when the parents come if they want to go because the kids can't tell them the name of their church. They, They know where to go to come to church. But don't think you don't question and think, okay, how's this going to be received? You think of that. So don't think that certainly doesn't bother the pastor or keep him up because it does. It's never up. That's just what I'm doing. I don't care what you think. It's never the case. If you have a pastor like that, he should go. He should go. He doesn't have a heart for the flock. You want to do things, you have to balance the principle of, 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 of the importance of people with what you're doing. And making sure, okay, is this, is this going behind where what I'm trying to accomplish, it'll hurt too much. And he even gives here, why you're to esteem very, very highly in love for the works' sake, for what's a, not because of the personality. It's not. It's not because you think you know what that Terry. I can't stand his personality. He, he, he's not. He's not Pastor Roach. You don't have to esteem me highly in love because of my personality, which I'm sure everybody's glad for that. I am too. <laughs> but for the work's sake is why that's done. For the work's sake. And know what that leads to? Let me finish with this. I'm done. It says, And be at peace among yourselves. Know what that are produced in the church? Peace. Unity. We can get something done. We can get something done. With heads bowed and eyes closed. Let me ask this here right now. This is most important. I want you to think about this. If you were to die right now, where would you go? Right now, if your soul was to depart your body, where would it go? It's going to heaven or hell. Where would your soul go? Because the Bible says this, one day you will die and stand before Almighty God. The Bible says it. once I to die, but after this, the judgment. You will die and stand before God. And listen to me, God Almighty, the Creator, will judge you. You say, well, what's the basis of the judgment? How is he going to judge me? It's going to be based on his law. And that gives you a problem and me a problem. Because all of us have broken his law. Every single person has. We've lied. We've coveted. We've put other gods before him. We've broken God's law. So you're going to die. You're going to be judged. You're going to be found guilty. And 100% of the people found guilty are cast into lake of fire. Something has to take place where you look perfect, because that's God's requirement, is perfection. Now, He knows none of us are perfect. None of us are. So, out of God's love and His grace for us, He provided a means for us to be able to look perfect. Now, it was through His Son, God became a man 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ. As a man, he lived the perfect life. The only person who's ever been on this earth that can go to heaven as a man, and the Father could say, you're innocent. He's the only one. But get this, he lived that perfect life for you. When he went to the cross, the Bible says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So what happened at the cross was this. He took all of your sin, all of your guilt, and He put it upon His Son. Not only that, then took His Son's perfect life to give to you. Taking His Son's righteousness to put on your life. So Christ, when He died for you, He took your sin and He paid the punishment for it. And at the same time, He's able to give you His perfect life. His righteousness. Salvation is only in Jesus Christ. If you're trusting in anything else, you've been deceived. It's in Christ. It's not in this church. It's not in your good works. It's not when you got baptized. It's not how good of a person you are. It is repentance and faith in what Jesus Christ did for you. Now, having said that, is there anyone here? I say pastor, please. I hear you. I'm not certain that I have been converted. I don't know that I am going to heaven. Please pray for me. Anyone here like that just put your hand up and then put it back down. Anyone here? Let me see it and then put it back down. I see some children's hand went up. That's all I've seen. If you put your hand up, I didn't miss it. I would need you to do it again. All right, Christian. If you need to come and pray this evening, you come and pray. Father in heaven, bless this invitation, Lord. I pray this in Christ's name.